What does the stock market have in common with a magician? They both use misdirection to distract the audience from paying attention to something more important. Details next. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill, and I'm joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jason Moser. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. So, for the past week, the dominant story in the investing world has been Elon Musk and Twitter. And I understand why it's been the dominant story, but it has sucked almost all of the oxygen out of the room. <laughs> and things are being overlooked. And one of them is the fact that the CEO of one of the most important companies in America published his annual shareholder letter. The company is Amazon. The CEO is Andy Jassy. First time Amazon has a, an annual shareholder letter published by someone other than Jeff Bezos. And there are a few things I wanted to get to in the letter uh, and, and uh, the interview that Jassy did after it was published. But let's just start here. What you read the letter? What was your headline? To me, the the headline really simply is, "Hey, folks, rest easy. We got the right guy for this job." I mean, anytime you replace a long-standing CEO and a founder CEO at that. Uh, I mean, there are going to be big questions as to whether you got the right person for the job, and and I think just judging judging by this letter and, and judging by the interviews I've seen with with Mr. Jassy through the through the months um, leading up to the letter, it just to me it feels like they've they've got the right person for this job. It's it's really funny too if you <laughs> if you. Or watching an interview with with uh, Andy Jassy, if you if you just close your eyes and and just listen and don't look, I swear you you think you're listening to Jeff Bezos talk. I mean, they are very similar, not only in how they not only in how they speak, but I mean, like the actual tone, the the the, the intonations, the the pauses. I mean, other than maybe that that big laugh, right? I think that's that's quintessential Bezos. But it's just it's really funny. I thought about that, and I closed my eyes, and I was listening to this interview. I thought, man, he really sounds like Jeff Bezos. And I'm sure that's that's probably there's probably a little bit of nurture there, and they've worked so closely together for so long. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, I think they just got the right person for this job. It's funny you say that about uh, Bezos, because yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Like, well, you know, if you just take away the laugh um, <laughs> and 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 read a transcript, if you're just thinking of, well, wh- how would Bezos answer the questions in an interview, that sort of thing? Um, I uh, pulled a, a trick um, out of uh, your bag and uh, did a search in Jassy's letter for the word customer. And oh, yeah. Bezos famously saying, "We want to be the most customer-centric company in the world." The word "customer" appears more than fifty times. Um, <laughs> Jassy made his bones as the head of AWS, so it's it's really no surprise that AWS is is very uh, front and center in this shareholder letter. Um, but between the letter and the this interview he did with Andrew Ross Sorkin on CNBC, I think one of the things Jassy did was simultaneously speak to the importance of AWS while quietly putting to rest any questions of whether they would spin it off. Um, and I have to say, as a shareholder, I like the fact that he views, you know, whenever we talk about spin offs, is almost always accompanied by the phrase unlocking value. 
Yeah. And and Jassy's approach is, you know, anytime you're thinking about spinning off, you have to answer the question, well, why would we do this? And to you know, to paraphrase what he said, there's no compelling reason. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, I think I think he's right. I mean, generally speaking, um, I, I did. I, I do love in in the letter. He, he, you know, he takes that he takes that moment to really nerd out on the AWS side, which is just it's really neat to see because I mean, that's like you said, that's how he made his bones. I mean, he's been intimately involved with that side of the business really since he's been there. I mean, that's what he's been responsible for. Um, so I just thought it was it was neat to read through. You can you can sense his excitement when he gets to talk about that stuff. And so I, I think that's uh, that's really neat because AWS is going to be a, a, a pivotal part of this company's future. And yeah, I mean, if if there were a compelling reason, if you felt like AWS was suffering under that Amazon umbrella, and you felt like you know, there would be value to unlock by giving it its own path. I mean, yeah, that, that's understandable. I mean, it's, you, when you see spinoffs, I mean, oftentimes it's maybe two two parts of the business that aren't as complementary as, as maybe they once were. I mean, I would argue in this case, I mean, an AWS is extremely complementary to virtually everything that Amazon does, uh, because AWS essentially helps run the internet, and, and you know, it's it's not hyperbole. At all to me to say that if Amazon closed its doors tomorrow, half the world would stop turning. I mean, it, it you know it it is that important of a business, and so when you have a crown jewel like AWS, uh, you got to come up with a compelling reason to unload it to, to, to spin it off. And and I I don't think I think he will be very protective of that side of the business and, and nurture it and give it all of the resources it needs. And that's the beauty of Amazon's businesses. It just they're generating all the capital and resources they need to keep iterating and growing, and that's exciting. A couple things, real quick. Uh, first, he addressed the fact that they've essentially doubled their fulfillment capacity in the last two years. Yeah. Um, in terms of their fulfillment centers, uh, the hundreds of thousands of people they have hired. Any concern on your part that we've talked about stocks that basically pulled forward growth? Um, is there any concern on your part that Amazon has maybe overgrown in terms of its staffing and hiring, or do you think no, this is this is what they need to do? Uh, I, I think it's probably more what they need to do. I mean, I think you raised some really good points there in regard to growth. I mean, they refer to that a couple of points in the letter. Um, ultimately, talking about the the consumer revenue, the North American and international consumer revenue, ultimately realized the equivalent of three years of forecast of growth in about 15 months. And to your point on the fulfillment centers, that that was another passage that was really that was an eye catcher. Because uh, he notes, he says, and I quote, this growth also created short term logistics and cost challenges. We spent Amazon's first 25 years building a very large fulfillment network and then had to double it in the last 24 months to meet customer demand. End quote. So that, I mean, all along the way, I think as investors, as analysts, we've talked about, you know, these investments that Amazon continues to make in fulfillment. And I mean, you're you're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of fifty million dollars they have to drop on just one fulfillment center, right? And were these wise investments? Were these investments they needed to be making? Well, I mean, it turns out yes. Now, I mean, it certainly 
easy to argue that there was a lot of demand pulled forward, and and so maybe they had to go a little be a little bit beyond what they were planning, right? Maybe they had to accelerate that timeline a little bit. But I don't think it, it's not difficult to imagine a future where that customer customer demand that they've realized over the last twenty four months. It's not. It's not difficult to see that demand sticking and growing as as the world continues to move online. I mean, clearly, Amazon is a global business, making large investments in in, in its international um, side as well. So, so to me, perhaps there could be some timing issues there. But I think that works itself out over over the longer haul, which is obviously how we view investing in these in these types of businesses. We also got some insight into how Jassy and his team think about new products. There was a section in the letter where he talked about MLPs, uh, not Master Limited Partnerships, <laughs> um, but what they refer to as minimum lovable product, which yeah. I, I I love this approach, which is essentially we. It doesn't have to be perfect, but it's got to be good enough so that we can iterate off of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's got to be something, and I like that they define there's got to be a threshold there. And and I mean, this is all part of this framework that he laid out there in regard to iterative innovation, which is, I mean, Amazon is known for never sitting still. In laying out that framework and some of the some of the 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 components they noted that help them in that iterative innovation and and I'll just read them off because I think they're really I think they're really helpful. I think there's there's a lot here for investors really. It's not just in building a business. I mean, look at this from the perspective of investing in too, but um, number 1 hire the right builders. Number 2 organize builders into teams that are as separable and autonomous as possible. Number 3 give teams the right tools and permission to move fast. Number four, you need blind faith but no false hope. Number five, to your MLP, define a minimum lovable product and be willing to iterate fast. Number six, adopt a long term orientation. And number seven, and maybe the most important, brace yourself for failure because that's a given. It's going to happen. And and you know, I say I say it all the time as investors, you need to embrace when we when we make mistakes. You need to embrace that because. If you can look at that for what it is, number one, we're always going to make mistakes as investors. But number two, they're the greatest teachers. If you can look at those mistakes as opportunities to learn, it just opens up a whole new world of opportunity. The last thing on Amazon, they're going to report, I believe May 5th is when their earnings report comes out. We will get some insight into how. Uh, consequential, the recent price increase of Amazon Prime is going. We're not going to get a full quarter's worth of data until they report in the summer. Um, how closely are you going to be watching that? Is is that is that a concern at all for you? Is it where does that rank on uh, your list of when Amazon comes out with their earnings report? This is this is where it ranks in terms of my own interest. Uh, so I think for me, 
a time ago, it may have been a bigger concern. And in one of the lessons I learned along the way um, in following Costco, and I think that's that's a business we we like and we talk about a lot. But but remember, over the last several years, we've we've entertained this discussion: Does Costco have pricing power? Right? Can they raise that membership fee, and are people still going to pay it? And we've seen through time, the answer is yes. They can raise it incrementally over time, um, and as long as they continue to offer value that, that their customers, uh, that their members uh, in turn value, then then I mean they, they can keep on thoughtfully doing that. And I think with Amazon, you know, they continue to offer a lot of value through that prime prime membership. And, and I know that there are some criticisms as of late in regard to shipping and maybe people don't get things on time all the time anymore and two days turns into four i mean we we as consumers have grown <laughs> have grown very impatient right we we want everything now and, and amazon's partly to blame for that because they have done such a great job in building that fulfillment network out and and to me it sounds like these investments uh, that they are making in in their prime relationship are the sensible ones, right? They're continuing to invest in that same-day shipping and, and, and making sure that they can get items to us as, as promised on the timeline, as promised. I think as long as they continue to make the right investments in that prime relationship and focus in on what people really care about first and foremost, which I think still, for the most part, is getting your stuff in a timely fashion, uh, th- then I think they'll be able to continue doing that. Um, it, it, it really, it really is difficult, right? Shipping and logistics and fulfillment—that's difficult work. Uh, but, but they've made a lot of investments along the way to really build out their capability, and, and I suspect that'll continue. Jason Moser, appreciate the perspective. Thanks. Hey, thank you. Jason's sticking around, and he'll be joined by his longtime podcast partner in crime, Matt Frankel. If you're a longtime listener, you know they love to dig into financial companies, and we got a question right up their alley. We got a review on Apple Podcasts from a listener with the screen name Change It Later Now, who writes, I'd like to hear a bit about Upstart Holdings. Seems like it hasn't been mentioned as much after it fell, but I'd like to hear about how rising interest rates in the U.S. will affect them in the future. If you're not familiar with Upstart, it is a lending platform with the ticker symbol UPSC. For a closer look, here's Jason and Matt. Hey, Matt, great to chat with you again. I hope uh, spring is springing down there in the lovely state of South Carolina. It is, and our, our pollen season is is coming to an end, which is always good news. You've heard from here, so you know how that is. <laughs> well, enough about the weather. We always <laughs> uh, we always appreciate listener questions and suggestions, requests for companies to dig into a bit for the show. Uh, so, with that in mind, this week we're taking a closer look at Upstart. Uh, this is a lending tech company. It's a very popular recommendation here uh, in our universe. Now, it, it's been an underperformer so far. Um, I'm not sure how long that will last, though. This is a pretty interesting business, to say the least. And I know it's one that you follow closely, too. So, let's just let's go ahead and begin the conversation with this simple question. What does Upstart do? Yeah, and that's a simple question, but it's kind of not so simple in a way, because I remember we talked about Upstart when they first went public, and we really didn't get the business model too much. We were like, yeah, subprime lender, it's you know, it's it's historically a bad bad idea to invest in subprime lenders, to be honest with you. But there's there are a lot more than that. They're a, a technology company. They develop a, an artificial intelligence platform that aims to do a better job 
of predicting loan losses than the traditional methods, specifically the FICO score. Um, so they provide the system that will underwrite and approve loans and try to give people the credit that they should have. Um, one of their big points is that the vast majority of people have never defaulted on a loan obligation, but less than half could qualify for lenders' best rates in most circumstances. Yeah. And there's a big disconnect there. So their, their system aims to solve that. So it, it, if you look at what they do now, their customers, it, it sounds like their customers, generally speaking, are lenders. Is that right? Like banks and, and just lenders. I mean, it's, or, or are consumers customers of Upstart as well? Well, yes and yes. Um, so, Upstart does partner with banks that make loans off of its platform, and that generates fee income for the business. Um, that's where the vast majority of Upstart's revenue comes from. Think of like 95% of it. But yes. it also does, if you go to upstart.com, you can apply for a loan, and they do hold some loans on their balance sheet and make some of their money from interest income, but very little compared to the fee income. So, it's mostly a fee based model. They mostly partner with banks to do a better job of underwriting loans on their for their capital. Okay, so you say this this I'm starting to get this picture of of sort of SaaS business more or less, but I want to make sure I understand this because you talk about fee income. Is there a subscription side to this business? Do, do banks pay a monthly subscription fee to Upstart for their services, and then they benefit also from that services fee along with that, or is this really just just a services? Uh, Style business. Well, the, the majority comes from the you know fees they get for facilitating those loans. Okay. Um, you know, in, in 2021, you could see that the the you know the, the increase in lending volume and the increase in fee income were really on par with each other, um, and that kind of just shows that their their fees depend on how many how much loan volume is is flowing through their network. Gotcha. So they're they're going to be pegged then, obviously, to lending volume, and we we can talk a little bit more about that in a bit. Um, but but before we get there, I mean, I, let's I, you know we always talk about competitive advantages. What what is a business's special sauce? You know what what separates them from from their competitors? I have a feeling I know what your answer is going to be here, but what what do you feel? What is it? What is it that separates Upstart from other uh, companies in this space? Well, there are a ton of personal lenders. We we've talked about that many times that the industry is getting really crowded. I mean, every everyone from the legacy banks to new fintechs have personal loan products. They all use the FICO score to approve loans for the most part. Right. Um, Upstart's the one that doesn't use the FICO score. So they can make better lending decisions and approve people for loans that they otherwise might not have been able to, and even if they could have gotten approved elsewhere, get better interest rates. So it's a better underwriting process. So it's a win-win for both the customers and for the banks. So making lending decisions based on data, and that sounds—if that sounds familiar—I mean, it should. I mean, that one of the companies this makes me think of immediately is Block, formerly known as Square. But Square doing such a good job in utilizing the data that they glean from their customers, the small businesses, in order to be able to make loans to those small businesses. Now, that's small business focus, right? That's more business focus. Would you say Upstart is is generally speaking? Primarily consumer focused. Yeah, they're they're absolutely consumer focused for now, um, and that's a really good point that you brought that up because they say by the end of 2022 they're going to get into small business lending. So for yeah. the time being, they're not a competitor with with Block or or Square Financial Services as their uh, business divisions called. 
Um, but they, they will be uh, very shortly. Yeah, and the other thing I noticed too in the most recent earnings call, just kind of piggybacking on that small business factoid, I think the following year, maybe 2023, they have aspirations to get into the mortgage lending business too, don't they? If there's one area where subprime lending could have be done better, it's definitely <laughs> mortgages. There's a market for it. We, I mean, in 2008, 2009, we saw that there was a market for subprime lending. It was just being done very, very poorly. Yeah. Um, so, if, if if a company could figure out how to do subprime lending right, there's a huge opportunity there, um, and that's really Upstart's focus. They don't focus on you know the you know quote unquote bad credit borrowers, but they don't focus on the prime borrowers either. Either they focus on that niche in the middle that's yeah. really being underserved by the current current system, especially in mortgages. Yeah, and one thing I noticed uh, in that call as well, they were talking about the business and the advantages that 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 it has over others. They they noted management noted that choosing not to become a bank was the right decision for them. It's it's essentially it's central to their worldview, and they went in went in a little bit more in, in that it gives them really the greatest market opportunity. It gives them this this large swath of of consumers. In need, right? It gives them the opportunity to focus uh, on on those consumers without necessarily sticking themselves with that bank identity. Because you know, once you become a bank, then you're competing with all these other banks. But I mean, if they're if they're seen as bank agnostic, essentially, I mean that that more or less opens up a, a much larger market opportunity. Yeah, it makes their addressable market literally every financial institution in in the in the United States. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of people too. I mean, a credit based economy. This is a valuable service they provide for sure. Uh, let's talk a little bit about leadership here because this is a founder led business. Um, insiders own a good stake in the business as well. Uh, what's your opinion on leadership and anything that stands out? Well, it, it, I, the leadership makes me glad that they are being a tech company, not a bank. Yeah. Uh, because it's led by a bunch of tech veterans. Uh, Dave Girard, the the CEO, he was a former Google executive. Uh, Anna, Anna Councilman's another co-founder that came from Google. Uh, Paul Gu is the um, you know the 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 tech guy of the trio of co-founders. All three are still involved in the business. All three have substantial ownership stakes. Um, it's a you know it's three very passionate founders. They left very you know, lucrative careers at places like Google to to start this, and it's because they are really passionate about democratizing credit. Well, let's let's dig a little bit more into that um, that fee based income and and how it's tied to lending activity because what we've seen, and obviously this is a business that um, has has. It, it's it's seen some high highs and it's seen some low lows, right? It's 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 down around forty five percent year to date. If you look uh, even further out though, it's it's down about eighty percent from its fifty two week high. I mean this 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 is this has come down considerably from just just where it was here recently. And I feel like probably part of that is going to be tied to that interest rate conversation. Let's let's talk a little bit about that because how. How big of a concern is that for investors? It feels like interest rates are really only headed one way, and uh, for those who haven't been paying attention, that's up. Uh, how how much of a how how much of a burden is that going to be for a business like this? Yeah, well, I mean, interest rates they have the effect of one slowing down um, borrowing demand, and two of increasing defaults on loans, and you know things get a little less affordable for consumers. Um, we really don't know, though, and this is a big risk factor. This is what you're seeing priced into the stock. 
we don't know how Upstart's business would perform in a recession, in a rising interest rate environment, because it just hasn't been through one yet. Right. Um, this this was founded around the time of the financial crisis, um, so you know it was in its infancy the last time that that defaults were elevated and things like that. So we don't know what it would do in a full credit cycle, and that's really now that it's not just you know the the economy going straight up, uh, if you will. It, it's now now it's there's a big question mark in investors' heads as to you know what happens if this these uh, inflation and interest rates leads to a recession. So. Yeah, big, well, big if, unanswered questions is really if, the, the key, and it feels like we're getting ready to learn, right? I mean, it feels like we're getting <laughs> ready to find the answer out here uh, over the over the course of the next year or so. Um, now, with that said, I mean that you know this reminds me a bit. I, I know you're familiar with Ellie May, right? The the mortgage lending tech platform. This just reminds me a little bit of Ellie May in that regard. Ellie May had a, a subscription dynamic as well as a service dynamic, but we were always having that big question with Ellie May: How is this stock going to? How is this business going to perform in an interest rate environment where refinances start to take a hit? Right? Will purchase mortgages be able to make up for that loss volume? And we never really got to find out because uh, Toma Bravo uh, acquired Ellie May a little while back. That was an eleven billion dollar deal, I think. Um, but I just I see a lot of a lot of tones of Ellie May in in this business, and, and that's a compliment. I was a big fan of Ellie May, as, as uh, many may know. What what's your what's your perspective here on on Upstart going forward? I mean, are you a bull, a bear? Are you you kind of on the fence? What, what's your feeling in regard to this as an investment? I mean, I'm generally bullish. I like it a lot better than I did you know when it was a four hundred dollars stock, because I mean, when you look at the numbers, these are not numbers from a company that's been beaten down like that. This is a business that's done exactly what investors wanted it to do. Um, you, revenues up two hundred fifty percent year over year. Lending volume is at you know twelve billion dollars of annualized volume. That's you know multiplied several times over in the past year alone. Um, their their auto lending business is getting ramped up, which was the big kind of bull thesis because that's a big market. It's a much bigger market than personal loans. Uh, the business is profitable. It continues to be profitable. Uh, margins have improved and. I mean, you really can't make the case that this business hasn't done exactly what investors should have wanted it to do. So I, I'm I'm generally bullish, especially now that the stocks come back down to earth. Yeah, I mean, it, it feels like I mean, lending is always going to ebb and flow, uh, but but it's not going away. And and so you're, I, I think that you're right. I mean, this this it feels like it's it's a business where management is doing what they say they are going to do. Um, if you can sort of ignore those external factors, I mean, maybe this is uh, one of those windows of opportunity for investors who are willing to take the longer view. But Matt, I think that will wrap it up for us. Thanks so much for taking the time to join the show today. I know I am all. Always the wiser for it, and I bet our listeners feel the same way. Yep, always glad to be here. If you've got a question, you can include it in a review on Apple. You can also call the Motley Fool Money Hotline, 703-254-1445. Leave us a message with your name, where you're calling from, and your question. Again, that number, 703-254-1445. That's all for today, but coming up tomorrow, a conversation about financial advice on TikTok. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.